Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 12, 38 through 45. You can find it on page 817 in the Pew Bible. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Thanks, Thomas. I want to pray for us once more. I invite you to bow with me. Father, we now ask that what we know not, that your spirit would please teach us what we have not, that you would please grant to us, and that what we are not by grace, you would please make us. It's for your glory and our good that we ask these things. Amen. This past week, I uh, suffered from a bit of an earworm which I, I'm assuming you know sounds far worse than it actually is, as an earworm is slang for when you have uh, a song lyric stuck in your head. The lyric that was taking up my headspace was from the renowned band Ace of Bass, which released a song my freshman year of high school titled The Sign. It's not exactly a creative masterpiece, I can say. The opening lyrics to it are, and I quote, Ram-a-ram, oh yeah. Not creative, but uh, from that, that's uh, actually pretty good because the lyrics, they get pretty salty because it's a song about a relationship that's gone sour. How life is, you know, like far better for me now that I'm no longer with you. I now see all the signs from our relationship, how you were really quite bad news. And here's where the earworm lyric line comes in. I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes and I am happy now living without you. I've left you, oh, oh, oh. There it is right there, creative genius. I saw the sign. It really was a pretty catchy tune, which is why it was the number one song of 1994 on Billboard's year-end chart. That song was stuck in my ear as I studied this week because of its use of the word sign in uh, the scene of the signs, the understanding of what the signs mean. Asa Bass saw the signs, the evidence of a bad relationship in Matthew 12. The Pharisees want to see a sign. They want to see evidence that will convince them that Jesus is the Son of God. So they say to him, hey, will you give us a sign? 
Their request, I think, has a very contemporary ring to it. Uh, people say, Jesus, will you give me a little something extra? If you will, then I'll really be able to believe. I mean, if you take away this chronic illness and, and heal me, I'll, I'll be able to actually know that you're there. I'll become a Christian. People say, if you, if you put this broken relationship back together, I'll repent and believe. Just show me some sort of sign that, that you're for reals. And then I'll become a Christian, I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll do all the things that Christian people do. Just give me a sign. That's what the religious intellects wanted from Jesus. Just give us a sign to convince us. They make the sort of request, as I have alluded to, that gets paraphrased in every generation of time. We, I'm sure we all know people who seek God earnestly. They're, they're wanting to have faith. They're looking for evidence to believe. That, that may even be you. You may be an earnest seeker. Having said that, that there's another sort of seeker who, who might say to a Christian friend conversationally, like, well, if God would give me a son, I, I really would believe. They, they say that, but in reality... Their insistence that God do something special just for them as a determining factor for belief is in fact a cover-up for their persisting unbelief. And I think that is what we're hearing in the words and what's tucked into the heart of the scribes and Pharisees. They're coming to Jesus and saying, hey, what else have you got for us? They're making a request, but really they're making a statement. They're refusing to accept the signs that Jesus has already provided for faith and belief. Now, as we enter into this conversation, we've already covered the preceding parts in chapter 12. We will want to keep in mind that this conversation comes right on the heels of the religious leaders uh, accusing Jesus of being involved with the occult. He just set a man free who's possessed by a demon. And the religious leaders, they're suspicious of Jesus's power because they have colleagues who can do the same sort of uh, things with demons. And so uh, they want Jesus to do something really spectacular to prove who he is. That's why they ask for a sign and not just a, a miracle. They want something more than just a, you know, a mere exorcism. We, we want you to do something so spectacular that we will have no doubt that God in heaven is showing up through you here on earth they ask for a sign jesus refuses to give them any more signs than the ones they've already seen he goes on to say verse 39 an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of jonah and that gets us to verses 38 through 42 i have one of two, two i have two points today here's the first one Jesus refuses a request for more. He refuses a request for more. Just a heads up, we'll spend a lot of time on this first point, just a little bit on the second. So with that in mind, first things first, let's see what we mean in saying that Jesus refuses a request for more. Let's notice, first of all, that this request, it's not framed as a, as a demand or, or a threat. What I mean is there's almost like a, a measure of politeness to it. The Pharisees address Jesus as, Teacher, granting him the same respect afforded to other rabbis. They seem cordial enough in their request making. But, but you have to wonder, like, how uh, they can be sincerely seeking a sign when in the preceding part of the chapter they've just witnessed Jesus heal a man with a paralyzed hand and exercise a demon out of another. They go, oh, yeah, that's fine. We want more. <laughs> well, what, what more would you like to be convinced to believe? What more is needed? 
After all, you'll recall that the crowds, our narrator noted for us back in verse 23, that when they saw the miracles of Jesus and assessed all that was happening before their eyes, they began to openly ask themselves, could this be the son of David? Well, we've never seen anyone do these things. Could this be God's deliverer for us? They were seeing the signs. I admit it's a small observation in passing, but I don't think we want to miss its significance. There are some who oppose Jesus in, in openly stated and blasphemous ways. We know about that. But, but there are others who resist him in, in the same spirit, but, but they do it with a measure of like postured open-mindedness. So they express some sort of interest, but underneath the intellectual skepticism is a heart that just doesn't want God's answers. The, the questions they always have, the demand for more proof, it's a cover-up for determined unbelief. I think that's why Jesus responds to the Pharisees in such a blistering way. He says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. So they're like posing as sincere seekers. But Jesus sees right through their politeness and their phoniness. He sees a proud heart of resistance that doesn't want God's answers. That's why he refuses to, to give them any more signs uh, on this day than what they already have. But he does bring up another sign that will be soon given to them, which Jesus calls the sign of Jonah. Jonah, as we heard from our reading just a few minutes ago, was an Old Testament prophet. He lived uh, seven centuries before the Lord Jesus. He was especially uh, called by God to proclaim a message of judgment in Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which uh, in the day was a great and wicked nation. Jonah, not a very good prophet, he didn't want any part in proclaiming judgment to Nineveh because he suspected that the Assyrians would listen and repent so that God would forgive them. And so in this act of like merciless and hard-heartedness uh, toward the Assyrians, Jonah hopped on a ship and essentially went the opposite end of the world. God, not pleased with his, pro his prophet's rebellion, uh, hurled this uh, great storm that Jonah was in hurled a great storm at the boat that Jonah was in. He then revealed to the other sailors that Jonah was the cause of the storm, and so in an act of uh, divine appeasement, they, they tossed Jonah over the side. You'd think uh, that would be the end of Jonah, but instead, God directed a great fish to swallow him. He uh, then remained alive in the aquatic monster's dark and dank belly for three days, while the fish began to work its way back toward Nineveh, and Jonah had time to learn his lesson. Three days' time, the sea creature discharges the prophet, who promptly begins walking toward Nineveh. He preaches, the people repent. Jesus pulls upon this story as historical fact. He doesn't say, like, metaphorically speaking, Jonah. He goes, no, let me cite something from history. And then he says that the sign of Jonah that he is alluding to has to do with Jonah being alive and well after three days of being entombed inside the belly of the fish. He, he's making the point that God was at work through Jonah. For, for three days, Jonah was considered to be as good as dead. When, when the soldiers hurled him, uh, the sailors rather, hurled him over the boat, they considered him to be dead. But after three days, Jonah showed himself to be alive, which was a sign that God was at work uh, in him. And so it will be with Jesus. 
the ultimate sign and miracle that will show that God is actively at work through Jesus the Christ will be verifiably clear when he's seen alive and well three days after his death. His resurrected life will be the sign of signs to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the Jews, to the Romans, that Jesus is Lord. The the resurrection of the crucified Christ who walked out of his tomb on that first Easter morning is and ever will be the sign of signs that he is God's son. Don't misunderstand things. He went into the grave having made atonement for sin and then dying. Not, Not symbolically dead like Jonah, but verified to be dead by a Roman soldier. When they placed him in uh, the dark and dank tomb, uh, they thought he'd been tragically swallowed up by the monster of evil. But then after three days, he showed himself to be alive, having conquered evil and death. Behold, the sign of Jonah. You see, friends, the the sign of Jesus' death and resurrection is a sufficient sign for us to believe that Jesus is God's son and the Savior that we need because His resurrection is historically valid. Just consider what happened in the lives of the disciples as they became emboldened ambassadors for Christ and his kingdom after encountering the resurrected Jesus. They they preached about him. They died in his name. And some of them died in the worst of ways. They, They were crucified. They were hanged. They were thrown to lions. They were tortured to death. Would they all be willing to die for a lie? Would you? I don't think so. This is what I mean in saying that there are historically valid reasons to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Not least of all, the witness and martyrdom of the apostles. Uh, Pascal once said, uh, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. The apostles, as a lot, so to speak, had their throats cut because they had seen the sign of Jonah. That they were eyewitnesses who saw, spoke to, and touched the resurrected Jesus after he was set free from his dark and dank tomb. It's interesting. Today is uh, November 12th. It's just, just uh, six weeks away from Christmas when we're going to celebrate Jesus' birth. And here we are having an Easter sermon. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus sits at the heart of the Christian faith. If it didn't happen, then nothing else matters. It makes me think of my favorite quote at Easter time to use from the uh, church historian uh, Yaroslav Pelikan. He said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Jesus' resurrection is more than enough of a sign for us to believe in our hearts profess with our lips that Jesus is Lord. You, you might have said at some point a, a little, you know, sh- shooter prayer. <laughs> you say, uh, Jesus, what, will you give me some special sign? If, if you will, I'll be able to believe. Well, he may have answered you, or he may have just said, uh, well, here's the sign. Look at my uh, empty tomb. If you will believe me to be resurrected, your life will be transformed by the same power of God that raised me from the dead. Will today be the day for you to finally profess faith in Jesus Christ? You've come here week after week after week. Will today be the day, November 12, 2023? Or will you persist in your skepticism, refusing God's answers for your life? I hope that you'll believe and be changed. 
I hope this very moment in the heart of hearts in which you sit here that you'll profess that Jesus is Lord because if you will, he will pull you out of the fogginess of your skepticism. It'll like reach out by the hand and pull you out of the tomb of your spiritual death. He will make you alive in himself. If you will confess that and profess that Jesus is Lord, he will stir a little resurrection event in your heart. See the signs. To fail to respond to Jesus is to fall under God's judgment. That's the warning that Jesus is next giving to Israel's leaders. But when he's, he speaks about the citizens of ancient Nineveh serving as witnesses against uh, this evil and adulterous generation. But what Jesus is doing here is, is he's contrasting the way that the people of Nineveh repented toward God in response to the preaching of Jonah. While the leaders of Israel, they refused to repent of their unbelief, and they had Jesus both preach to them, and they saw his miracles and signs that he performed before their very eyes. So says Jesus, well, consequently, at Judgment Day, the Ninevites will rise up and condemn Jesus' generation because they, the Ninevites, heard just a little bit and believed, whereas Jesus' contemporaries saw much more and refused to believe. Jesus makes this, the same sort of point in bringing up the Queen of Sheba, who traveled hundreds of miles to hear Solomon's wisdom. Once she heard Solomon you know, preach God's wisdom, uh, we're just told that she was left breathless. She then said, blessed be the Lord your God. In some sort of way, she saw and believed without any miracle to persuade her or bodily resurrection to convince her. The, the point of both of these examples is that Jesus is saying the Gentiles, Assyrians, and Egyptians believed and repented with far less evidence available than the Pharisees. And so, in the judgment day to come, there'll be witnesses against Jesus' generation. The, the point for us that Jesus is, is making is this, that the greater evidence that you have, the greater responsibility you have to believe. So I hope you'll consider that here we are 2,000 years after Jesus warned the Pharisees about their refusal to believe with us having far more evidence for faith. We have the story of the early church, the preaching, the martyrdom of the apostles, of course, the historical implications of the resurrection of Jesus, which spills all over the pages of history. The greater evidence you have, the greater responsibility you have to believe. That's the sobering warning that Jesus was making in his day. How much more so in ours? The other thing Jesus is doing inciting these examples about Jonah and Solomon is that he's comparing himself to them in the likeness of their ministries. Or to be more exacting, he's illustrating how he is greater than one of Israel's famous prophets and greater than one of Israel's great kings. Did you catch Jesus's little repetition of verse 41? Something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is greater in Jonah in, in lots of ways. He's, he's greater in his person. Uh, Jonah was just a mere man. While uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the creed puts it, is the only Son of God, uh, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father, through whom all things were made. 
Jesus is, is greater in his person than Jonah. He's greater in his obedience to God than Jonah. Jo Jonah just flat out disobeyed and was chastened. Certainly, Jesus was greater in his love. Jonah didn't even really love the people of Nineveh. He just wanted them to die. Jonah's message saved Nineveh from judgment. It was a message of the wrath of God, that they needed to flee it. Jesus' message is that of grace and salvation. Something, something greater than Jonah is here. Something, some ones, is greater, greater than Solomon is here. Uh, Jesus is greater than Solomon in his wisdom and wealth and his works. The, the queen of Sheba was amazed at what she saw of Solomon's kingdom. But honestly, what we have in the kingdom of God through Jesus, which has come and is coming, it far surpasses Solomon's glory. Not only that, but Jesus is the final and perfect word of wisdom of God. And so to, to sit at Christ's table, to, to hear his words, to, to share in his, his blessing of, of baptism and communion and Christian fellowship, we have so much more satisfying reasons to believe and to admire, way more than even what Solomon's kingdom represented. Something greater than Solomon is here in the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. Greater than, greater than, greater than. While we're focusing on that little greater than phrase that Jesus apparently liked to use, you'll want to remember too that in verse 6 that Jesus said at that point that I'm greater than uh, the temple which you see here. Greater than the temple, the, the, the place of priestly ministry. Gr greater than Jonah, the prophet of old. Greater than Solomon, the famous king of God's people. You, you put the three together, and what is Jesus doing? He's claiming to be the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecy, prophets, the Old Testament offices. He is the greater prophet, priest, and king, all in one. What do we mean by that? Well, he, he's the prophet who speaks God's words. He, he gives us uh, necessary knowledge about God, about the way of life. As John says, he himself is the very word of God. Jesus is also the priest. He is the only one by whom we may be forgiven and justified and reconciled to God. Jesus is the king who rules over us in love and wisdom. He delivers us from our foolishness. He puts us on this path of life that, that leads to the good life. Speaking of, of the seeking of the good life, I was thinking about how we're living in this moment of time where uh, the, the wisdom of our age says that uh, how you get the good life is uh, by uh, focusing on yourself. We're to be uh, true to ourselves, uh, to follow our own hearts. You, you may have even said that yourself. Uh, you be you. F follow your heart. It all sounds very liberating, but uh, what we're increasingly seeing is how devastating it is when we make ourselves the center of it all. You read the exact same things that I read. P people are experiencing record-breaking levels of aimlessness and loneliness, depression, and anxiety. And it's not just the younger generation which is being succumbed by these things. It's, it's every generation. Loneliness, aimlessness, friendlessness, depression. It's, it's showing up across the board. What, what is the cause of all of this? Well, I think we're seeing the reality that self-centeredness always fails to deliver on true fulfillment. The Christian gospel 
proclaims to us that there is corruption and foolishness in our hearts. It's why we aren't directed to follow our hearts. Because when we do, we have like this uh, self-absorbed tunnel vision. Uh, We make a mess of life. We hurt other people when we make our own happiness and ourselves the supreme aim of life. Instead of following our hearts, the Christian gospel points us to our need for someone greater than ourselves, greater than to enter into our hearts and put things in order. Someone greater than ourselves who can satisfy our hungry hearts. Someone greater than ourselves who will turn us away from our self-worship towards someone more interesting, more satisfying, and way more awesome than ourselves. That is the testimony on the pages before us, that this is who Jesus is. Someone more interesting, more satisfying, someone more awesome than you and me. After all, who else do you know that has risen from the dead? Jesus' resurrection is more than a sign for us to believe in our hearts and profess with our lips that Jesus is Lord. Do you see the sign? Now, as mentioned very briefly, we've got to give our attention to verses 43 through 45, where in an interesting sort of way, Jesus warns about the refusal of him. So point one, Jesus refuses a request for more. Point two, Jesus warns about refusal of him. His warning comes packaged up in a little parable, a parable that illustrates the point that that no one can be neutral or indifferent to Jesus in view of the signs and the miracles. We want to recognize that the parable is just that. It's, It's a parable. It's not a fully developed novel. It's a short story with a punchy point about an evil spirit who comes out of a man. Jesus, he doesn't explain how the change occurs, just that the spirit simply leaves. Upon departing, it's then dissatisfied because it has no place to rest. So it considers returning to its original host, saying, I will return to the house I left. The man, the host has done something to put his house in order after the evil spirit left him. Uh, just as a, uh, it's now been swept clean, but it's still not properly occupied. It's empty. In other words, there's no master of the house. Therefore, the fellow's life is still a suitable host for the demon who has now brought along a posse of evil spirits more wicked than himself. They all, collectively so, take up residence in the man's life. And now, clearly, he's in a worse condition than he was in the first place. It's a rather cryptic little parable. Well, what does it mean? Well, that's why I'm glad I have friends who write books. (laughs) I said, I don't know what that means. Another pastor said, well, here's what I think it means. He says, we see, therefore, that it's possible to organize one's life and still fall into the thrall of evil. He said people can reform their habits and morals without actually ever touching the heart. You can do a little bit of self-reform. You can pick up some some better habits. You you can uh, go to bed earlier. You can pay your debts more aggressively. You can stop trying to stare at your phone so much. You can try to be a little bit nicer of a driver. You you can do a little self-reform. In the case of the Pharisees, to whom Jesus is primarily speaking, you can try and get your life in order by trying to follow God's laws and rules. And here's the thing. You can even break some of the habits of some of your vices. If you like, you you, you can sweep evil out of your heart. You can put things in order in your own strength. 
You go, okay, good, you've reordered your own life. But here's the punchy part of Jesus' parable. He says, yeah, you've ordered your life, but he's showing you that your heart will still be void of something greater than your vices. And in fact, you may find yourself to be even more susceptible to the advance of the evil one even after your reforms. It's because uh, moralism, a well-ordered life, it's still an empty life. It's a joyless life. It's a vulnerable life. This is why the Christian gospel is a proclamation that you need King Jesus, someone greater than yourself, to enter your life and to apply his kingly rule over every square inch of it. You, you can't DIY yourself out of your spiritual shambles. You need Jesus to clean out your life and then to become the master of your home. If you try and rule your life by your own self-determination, the way things usually go is that life gets worse and worse, and you may even find yourself overcome by evil. That's the warning that Jesus is making. Those who refuse him end up in the worst of conditions and places. I think this little parable also is a warning for the person who continues to refuse Jesus in a politely persistent sort of way. As I was saying at the beginning, the sort of skeptical seeker who says, if God would give me a sign, I would believe. They say that, but in reality, their insistence that God do a little something special for me. Can't you see the self-absorption in it? It's just a determining factor that I need from you, but in really, it's just a cover-up for unbelief. They don't want the answers that God has given. They refuse to accept the signs that Jesus has provided for faith and belief. And for those who continue to refuse him or even persist in stated neutrality toward him, Jesus says in the story that you'll end up in the worst of condition and in the worst of places. It's a hard parable. So it just leads me to ask the most obvious question, which you know I'm going to ask. Have you seen the sign? Are you understanding the parable? Are you understanding the signs? Have you opened up your eyes and seen the signs? It's interesting to a world that's looking for signs for and from God. God has given his sign to the world, the one and only supremely sufficient sign, the sign of Jesus' resurrection. The sign that through the church that God is active in the world, in and through the ministry of the Lord Jesus, that he's redeeming the lives of those who profess that Jesus is Lord. Friends, I can't urge upon you enough to believe the signs and be changed, to profess that Jesus is Lord. If you'll profess that Jesus is Lord by faith, he'll pull you out of your hand, he'll pull you by the hand out of your skepticism. He'll deliver you from your spiritual death and, and darkness. Profess Jesus is Lord, and you will experience a little resurrection of your own.